Chapter Twenty Five of The Enchanted Barn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. The Enchanted Barn by Grace Livingston Hill. Chapter Twenty Five. The man looked up from the paper he was twisting for a fire and saw Shirley's attitude of despair. Say, kid, he said with a kind of gruff tenderness, you don't need to take it that away. I know it's tough luck to lose out when you've been so nervy and all. "'But you knew we had it over you from the start. "'You hadn't a show. "'And say, girlie, I'll tell you what. "'I'll make Kenny sit down right now and copy him off for you, "'and you can put him in your book again when you get back, "'and nobody be the wiser. "'We'll just take out the leaves. "'We gotta keep the original, of course, "'but that won't make any beans for you. "'It won't take you no time to write him over again "'if he gives you a copy.' "'Somehow it penetrated through Shirley's tired consciousness "'that the man was trying to be kind to her.' He was pitying her, and offering her a way out of her supposed dilemma, offering to assist her in some of his own kind of deception. The girl was touched, even through all her other crowding emotions and weariness. She lifted up her head with a faint little smile. "'Thank you,' she said wearily. "'But that wouldn't do me any good.' "'Why not?' asked the man sharply. "'Your boss would never know it got out through you.' "'But I should know I had failed.' she said sadly. If you had my notes, I should know that I had failed in my trust. It wouldn't be your fault. You couldn't have helped it. Oh, yes, I could, and I ought. I shouldn't have let the driver turn round. I should have got out of that car and waited at the station, as Mr. Barnard told me to do till he came. I had been warned, and I ought to have been on my guard. So, you see, it was my fault. She drooped her head forward, and rested her chin dejectedly on the palm of her hand, her elbow on her knee. The man stood looking at her for a second in half-indignant astonishment. "'By golly,' he said at last, "'you certainly are some nut. Well, anyhow, buck up, and let's have some tea. Sorry I can't see my way clear to help you out any further, being as we're sort of partners in this job, and you certainly have got some nerve for a girl. But you know how it is. I guess I can't do no more than I said.' I got my honor to think about, too. See? Henny, get a move on. We ain't waiting all night for eats. Bring in them things from the cupboard, and let's get to work. Shirley declined to come to the table when at last the repast was ready. She said she was not hungry. In fact, the smell of the crackers and cheese and pickles and dried beef sickened her. She felt too hysterical to try to eat, and besides, she had a lingering feeling that she must keep near that piano— if anything happened, she had a vague idea that she might somehow hide the precious notes within the big old instrument. The man frowned when she declined to come to supper, but a moment later stumbled awkwardly across the room with a slopping cup of coffee and set it down beside her. "'Buck up, girlie,' he growled. "'Drink that, and you'll feel better.' Shirley thanked him and tried to drink a few mouthfuls. Then the thought occurred to her that it might be drugged, and she swallowed no more." but she tried to look a bit brighter. If she must pass this strange evening in the company of these rough men, it would not help matters for her to give way to despair. So, after toying with the teaspoon a moment, she put the cup down and began to play soft airs on the old piano again, while the men ate and took a stealthy taste now and then from a black bottle. She watched them furtively as she played, marveling at their softened expressions, remembering the old line, "'Music hath charms to soothe the savage breast.' and wondering if, perhaps, there were not really something in it. If she had not been in such a terrifying situation, she would really have enjoyed the character study that this view of those two faces afforded her, as she sat in the shadow playing softly while they ate with the flaring candle between them. "'I like music with my meals,' 
suddenly chanted out the boy in an interval. But the man growled in a low tone, Shut up! Ain't you got no manners? Shirley prolonged that meal as much as music could do it, for she had no relish for a more intimate tete-a-tete with either of her companions. When she saw them grow restless, she began to sing again, light little airs this time with catchy words, or old tender melodies of home and mother and childhood. They were songs she had sung that last night in the dear old barn, when Sidney Graham and Elizabeth were with them, and unconsciously her voice took on the wail of her heart for all that dear past so far away from her now. Suddenly, as the last tender note of a song died away, Joe stumbled breathlessly into the room. The boy Henny slithered out of the room like a serpent at his first word. "'Beat it!' he cried in a hoarse whisper. "'Get a move on! All hell's out after us! I bet they heard her singing. Take her and beat it! I'll douse the fire and out the candle!' He seized a full bucket of water and dashed it over the dying fire. Shirley felt the other man grasp her arm in a fierce grip. Then Joe snuffed out the candle with his broad thumb and finger, and all was pitch dark. She felt herself dragged across the floor, regardless of furniture in the way, stumbling, choking with fear, her one thought that whatever happened she must not let her slippers get knocked off, holding her feet in a tense strain with every muscle extended to keep the shoes fastened on like a vice. She was haunted with a wild thought of how she might have slipped under the piano and eluded her captor if only the light had gone out one second sooner before he reached her side. But it was too late to think of that now, and she was being dragged along breathlessly, out the front door, perhaps, and down a walk. No, it was amongst trees, for she almost ran into one. The man swore at her, grasped her arm till he hurt her, and she cried out. "'You shut up or I'll shoot you,' he said with an oath. He had lost all his suavity, and there was desperation in his voice. He kept turning his head to look back and urging her on. She tripped on a root and stumbled to her knees, bruising them painfully, but her only thought was one of joy that her shoes had not come off. The man swore a fearful oath under his breath, then snatched her up and began to run with her in his arms. It was then she heard Graham's voice calling, "'Shirley, where are you? I'm coming!' She thought she was swooning or dreaming, and that it was not really he, for how could he possibly be here? But she cried out with a voice as clear as a bell, "'I'm here, Sidney! Come, quick!' In his efforts to hush her voice, the man stumbled and fell with her in his arms. There came other voices and forms through the night. She was gathered up in strong, kind arms and held. The last thought she had before she sank into unconsciousness was that God had not forgotten." He had been remembering all the time, and sent his help before it was too late, just as she had known all along he must do, because he had promised to care for his own, and she was one of his little ones. When she came to herself again, she was lying in Sidney Graham's arms, with her head against his shoulder, feeling, oh, so comfortable and tired. There were two automobiles with powerful headlights standing between the trees, and a lot of policemen in the shadowy background. Her captor stood sullen against a tree, with his hands and feet shackled. Joe stood between two policemen with a rope bound about his body spirally, and the boy Henny, also bound, beside his fallen bicycle, turned his ferret eyes from side to side, as if he hoped even yet to escape. Two other men with hawk-like faces that she had not seen before were there also, manacled, and with eyes of smoldering fires. Climbing excitedly out of one of the big cars came Mr. Barnard, his usually immaculate pink face, smutty and weary, his sparse white hair rumpled giddily, and a worried pucker on his kind, prim face. 
"'Oh, my dear Miss Hollister, how unfortunate!' he exclaimed. "'I do hope you haven't suffered too much inconvenience.' Shirley smiled up at him from her shoulder of refuge, as from a dream. It was all so amusing and impossible after what she had been through. It couldn't be real. "'I assure you I am very much distressed on your account,' went on Mr. Barnard, politely and hurriedly, "'and I hate to mention it at such a time. But could you tell me whether the notes are safe? Did those horrid men get anything away from you?' A sudden flicker of triumph passed over the faces of the fettered man and the boy, like a ripple over still water, and died away into unintelligence. But Shirley's voice rippled forth in a glad, clear laugh, as she answered joyously, "'Yes, Mr. Barnard, they got my notebook, but not the notes. They thought the Tillman Brooks notes were what they were after, but the real notes are in my shoes. Won't you please get them out? For I'm afraid I can't hold them on any longer. My feet ache so.' It is a pity that Shirley was not in a position to see the look of astonishment, followed by a twinkle of actual appreciation that came over the face of the shackled man beside the tree as he listened. One could almost fancy he was saying to himself, The nervy little nut! She put one over on me after all. It was also a pity that Shirley could not have got the full view of the altogether precise and conventional Mr. Barnard kneeling before her on the ground, removing carefully with deep embarrassment and concern, first one, then the other, of her little black pumps, extracting the precious notes, counting over the pages, and putting them ecstatically into his pocket. No one of that group but Shirley could fully appreciate the ludicrous picture he made. "'You are entirely sure that no one but yourself has seen these notes?' he asked anxiously, as if he hardly dared to believe the blessed truth. "'Entirely sure, Mr. Barnard,' said Shirley happily. "'And now, if you wouldn't mind putting on my shoes again, I can relieve Mr. Graham of the necessity of carrying me any further.' "'Oh, surely, surely,' said Mr. Barnard, quite fussed and getting down laboriously again, his white forelock all tossed, and his forehead perplexed over the unusual task. "'How did women get into such a little trinket of a shoe, anyway?' "'I assure you, Miss Hollister, our firm appreciates what you have done. "'We shall not forget it. "'You will see. "'We shall not forget it,' he puffed as he rose with beads of perspiration on his brow. "'You have done a great thing for Barnard and Clegg to-day.' "'She's done more than that,' said a burly policeman, "'significantly glancing around the group of sullen prisoners, "'as Graham put her upon her feet beside him. "'She's rounded up the whole gang for us, "'and that's more than anybody else has been able to do yet.' She ought to get a medal of some kind for that. Then, with a daredevil lift of his head and a gleam of something like fun in his sullen eyes, the manacled man by the tree spoke out, looking straight at Shirley, real admiration in his voice. I say, pard, I guess you're the winner. I'll hand you what's coming to you if I do lose. You certainly had your nerve. Shirley looked at him with a kind of compassion in her eyes. I'm sorry you have to be... There, she finished, you were as fine as you could be to me under the circumstances, I suppose. I thank you for that. The man met her gaze for an instant, a flippant reply upon his lips, but checked it, and dropping his eyes was silent. The whole little company under the trees were hushed into silence before the miracle of a girl's pure spirit, leaving its impress on a blackened soul. Then quietly, Graham led her away to his car, with Barnard and the detectives following. The prisoners were loaded into the other cars, and hurried on the way to judgment. End of chapter 25